0: All right, Um, gosh, it's kind of too late now. We've got people scooting in the back. Make sure um, in the future, especially in this service, when you get in, to scoot fill in these gaps in between. We end up having people scattered around in the back and that kind of stuff. You guys all look okay back there, though. You're not so far away. I can't see if you're sleeping. I'm talking to you, Ken, right back there. Right. All right. So um, uh, on a normal week, there's a lot of things that go into making a Sunday morning happen. Um, one of the key ones. Sometime during the week, um, I take the sermon that that I've worked through and kind of uh, developed, and um, and I send it in note form, uh, a big just a, just a big document with just verses and that kind of stuff in there, and and I send that to David Self and a number of other people, mostly so they can like, you know, wave me off like, no, that's heresy, don't say that, and uh, and then for uh, but what David does every week is sometime between the time I send that to him and. And Sunday morning, he turns it into something that can go up on the screens and, and can be slides, and he takes care of all that for me. And then he, he runs a sound booth and organizes all the, the, the people who do the cameras and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and he really, in addition to many, many other ministries, he served many of you guys as you've helped. You've hosted groups up here or whatever. You've needed sound. David comes up and helps. And, and, uh, and today happens to be David's birthday. So I thought we would say, he's up there at the top. We'd say, happy birthday to David. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <clears throat> um that's that's a um it's uh, I we we dread the day when he's going to start asking to be paid and so uh <laughs> cuz we're we he's got us over the barrel. Um okay, so the uh the branch disconnected from the vine not doing so well. Uh, as you can see, it's pretty much dead. The green is fake. At this point, they're pretty much just just it's all dead. So apparently a couple of weeks, that's how long you can go disconnected and then it's over. Good. Just run a little experiment there for us. The um, uh, we were as we're teaching in John um, 15 this week. I uh, wanted to make sure you knew there's there's a every Sunday there's a lot of different thoughts and people commentaries writers speakers um, who I steal stuff from to go into the sermons and and uh, take the best stuff I can find. But this week especially since really we're talking specifically in regards to the to the work and the and the action and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians. Because um, we're really just looking at two two key verses today in John 15, and uh, and so I, I did a, a lot more of that this week of listening to other pastors and speakers and teachers and and stuff than I even normally do because I realized that so so for example everything from um, you know Francis Chan had a uh, um, a series back in 2014 and wrote a book The Forgotten God um, about the Holy Spirit and and how it's easy for us in the evangelical church to kind of overlook the work of the Spirit sometimes. Um, Bible Project, which I've referenced them before, have a, has a great series as well on the Holy Spirit, and, and we even looked at that a few chapters ago, So, one of their videos about that. Um, there was an Anglican pre- priest who I, I listened to one of his sermons, and he had a line that made me kind of almost spit out my coffee uh, that was so good when he said, you know, in the Anglican church, I, I didn't know we had this in common with them, by the way, in the Anglican church that everyone knows that they worship the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. And, uh, and so I think that's the same in, in our church. It's very natural for us to have that. When I went back and looked at my basic theology notes, um, and, and it was amazing out of, out of like four or five pages about the Holy Spirit, like half a page was about the active work of the Holy Spirit in our life now, and the whole rest of it was about the inspiration and illumination of Scripture. Because it's really easy for us in the Baptist world and the evangelical world to, to, to really emphasize, not wrongly, but to emphasize that, that one of the most important works of the Holy Spirit in our lives day to day has been that the Spirit has inspired Scripture and continues to illuminate Scripture in our lives. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. I also found a, a sermon that was really helpful by uh, Spurgeon from January 21st, 1855. And uh, in, this, in this passage, uh, as, as he taught through John 14, one of the passages we'll look at and that we already talked about, and Spurgeon's take on the work of the Holy Spirit. And though it is discouraging in some ways, it is also comforting in some ways to know that 150 years later, we are still wrestling with what it means to live out the work and life of the Holy Spirit here. Um, it's easy for us to do the things of God. I don't know about you, that's very easy for me. I'm kind of a, an activity oriented person. Um, it is not in my normal nature to be still. And, uh, and so it's easy for me to do the things of God uh, with, and, and then forget to invite God into that process. It's kind of like there are times I think that it's like I've, I've thrown a giant surprise birthday party for my wife. Um, I've got all the guests and I've got the food and I've got the decorations and I've, I've got all the activities and I've got everything planned out. And about 20 minutes into the birthday party, I realize I forgot to invite Ginger to the party and it's, it's kind of the same thing. It has that feel to it of like realizing I can get so far into studying God and researching God and, and looking at how I'm going to explain things about God and understanding God and throwing a party for God. And then it's easy for me to forget to invite God. I don't know about you, but that's, that's very easy for me. On top of that, because we are flawed humans and we have this law of undulation where we have up and down, it's also easy, I know you think, many of you, those of you who know me know this is just straight legit, but those of you who don't know me very well probably think, well this is the kind of thing preachers say when we get up some Sundays and say, you know it's very comforting that God is the one who's at work here. Um, that that even if I as the messenger have not got it all together, that I'm or if I'm not feeling good or if I'm too tired or if I'm whatever, it's just comforting to know that God is still working despite us, through us, whichever is required. Um, but that's... That's that's not, and maybe that is a thing preachers say. When I say it, like at first service, I got up, and the the feeling of the presence of God, well, I would say hovered. The the meter there was hovering around zero for me this morning, and I, I don't think that's straight. I know that that's scary for you to probably hear from your pastor, but. <laughs> But the truth is, if you've lived out the Christian life and you've ministered very much, you have, you've been there as well. It doesn't change what I know to be true. It doesn't change what I'm going to preach. It doesn't change the truth of that. And it doesn't change whether the Spirit is going to work in your life. It has no bearing on that. It's it is not because God has left me or forsaken me and dragged off or been distant or anything like that. The truth is it's just because as a human, certain things play into that. This week, going to youth camp and, and going to youth camp for a couple of days. And so one Getting to have, we we had a two hour Q and A with the youth. Me on me, kind of in the spotlight doing Q and A. And let me just tell you, it was it was an awesome experience. It was a wonderful time. And our youth were mainly at the theme this year. Question after question after question after question was the invisible creation, angels, demons, heaven, hell, and the Holy Spirit. This is this is right there for where our young people are. And that was such a great time that I think kind of like Elijah coming coming away from defeating the. The the at the Mount Carmel defeating the the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. The next thing he's dealing with is this kind of spiritual dryness that he experiences. I think that happens. One, two. I spent two nights on a on a camp bunk in a room full of middle schoolers. So I'm also way behind on sleep. Right? Am I right? So and so it's like part of it is also that's just us. And and part of why I'm sharing this is just so that you will know as a Christian as we go through different phases and moods and emotions and that kind of stuff this has no bearing on whether or not the spirit is alive and active in our lives it's just it's just us and so that that is that is there as well now I will tell you after the first service and 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 getting to preach and talk about this and and realizing how much of this sermon was written for me and that y'all didn't have to be here this morning was was really positive and powerful but that Part of that also was to remind me again that I want us to pray that today as we go through God's Word that the Spirit does work and illuminate and speak where we are because He knows, I don't know where you are. Um, I was very comforted by this. Apparently Spurgeon, I didn't know this until this week, apparently Spurgeon ended all of his sermons with the same benediction. And it's this, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... And the love of God and the fellowship, in, intimate word there, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So pray with me. Father, I ask that through the power of the Spirit, Spirit, I ask that you're, through your power you would sanctify us, that you would make us more holy as you testify to the Son. Father, thank you that you have sent the Son and the Spirit. Son, thank you that you have come and you've lived life as a human being. And then as you say, it was good for you to leave so that the Spirit would be able to come into our lives. Almighty God, I thank you that you desire to dwell, to tabernacle, to live an intimate life with us, and that you give us that opportunity through the power of your Spirit. I thank you for this with more than I have in words. Amen. So here we have in John 15, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. and I really hate being hated without cause. Um, I mean, in, in, in our version, again, I, I said last week, this, this stuff isn't preached a whole lot right now, though I think in the future we will see more and more as we're kind of just starting to get the first waves of, of the rain of persecution uh, that will eventually become a storm, I think, in our culture. Um, and so we will, we will be coming back to these passages probably more and more often um, and over the next you know, couple of decades as we figure out what it's like to live out um, to live out this life in a persecuted culture, a hostile world, hatred without cause. Um, if, you, if you run into that, maybe, maybe you've run into some version of that, a family member or a friend or more likely on something like social media where someone clearly has chosen to hate you without cause and even on something silly like that, that it gets stuck in your head and you find yourself kind of arguing with them hours of your day like, you know, you know what I ought to say, this is what I ought to say. I'm going to, you know, next time when I get back on there, this is what I to. And you, and you find yourself doing that because you're going, why don't they like me? Why do they hate me so much? What is it about? And we get stuck with that. And Jesus is living that out. And think about the fact that the early church lived this out in stark reality. It, it, it struck me the significance of this. They are living in the type of persecution. They have the, the hatred of the Jewish leadership. It's, it's as if the churches around them, the government around them, hates them. Hates them. And on top of that, soon the entire weight of Roman hatred will be falling on them. Let me tell you, when the Romans hate you, they will chase you down. It, it is unreal to deal with the level of hatred that these, that these early Christians were facing. When, if you can imagine coming to Sunday school... So you go to your small group, you go to life group, and you show up, and there's four people missing this week. Well, you know, where are the Smiths this week? Well, they got them. They're dead. They're in prison. And that happening week after week after week, that you gather together, and part of what you're doing is recognizing who's not here this week. Who's dead this week? It's kind of like that old, you know, that that college freshman speech. Look to your right, look to your left. They're not going to be there next semester, right? You imagine going to Sunday school and having that conversation. Hey, look to your right, look to your left. Probably at least one of them will be dead by this time next week. The Romans or the Jews will have caught up with them. The pagans will have caught up with them. Uh, just, just other Christians who are disagreeing with them will have caught up with them. It's, un, it's unreal the kind of persecution they face. How do they live that way? I mean, People are doing it today all around the world. People are living like that. They are living in small churches and they go to church in the hopes that the next week most of them will still be alive when they show back up or not arrested. It's crazy to consider that they face this. How? So what I just read, the world's going to hate you. It hates the Father. It hates me. It's going to hate you. Do you remember what this whole John 14, 15, 16, what this was about? Why is Jesus having this conversation with them? Why is he telling them this stuff? Do you remember? Remember what it started with? What's he trying to accomplish here? Nobody? I want to make you all go back right now and listen to those sermons. Let me know when you got an answer. It's to comfort them. Yeah, he's not nailing it. I mean, this is not comforting at all. This is a terrible, this is Jesus' idea of comforting people. Listen, they're going to hate you. They hate me. They're going to hate you. They're going to kill you. And they're going to think they're doing it in my name. And by the way, when John wrote this, this is well after the Apostle Paul is dead. When John wrote this, probably. You realize the Apostle Paul was the fulfillment, was one of the many fulfillments of Jesus Saying this, the Apostle Paul hunted people down in the name of Yahweh. He hunted down the followers of Jesus and had them killed. He thought he was doing the right thing. Are we ready for that? Are we ready to have to face that? Are we ready to have to face this? So, one of them is we talked about last week. What do we, how do you make it through that? How do you survive that? Well, Jesus had told them in the first section of this one of the things that you survive that with is the love of one another. One of the reasons we must love one another and do so well is because the world is not going to love us. God forbid that you come to church and you face the stress of infighting and tension and relate, broken relationship at church. That's what the world is for. When we find other Christians, we should be able to come to one another and go, whether we agree or disagree, whether we think the carpet should be this color or that color, or this, okay, we can, maybe we can have those conversations, but the truth is, brother, sister, we made it through another week. And we still hold fast to the gospel. I think persecution probably does a lot about a lot of taking away the petty infighting that happens sometimes in churches. I've got to figure it does. But, but saying that, one of them is that. So I, want, I use this image a lot, but it's so powerful and it speaks so powerfully to me. I think we have a picture of the deserts um, in just some of the deserts in Israel. So down around the Dead Sea, this is what it looks like all around there. I mean, it looks like this. we got another one. I mean, it's boring. If you like tan, this is where you want to go for vacation. (laughs) Because there's a lot of tan. Everything's tan. Even the people get tan quickly or red like me. It is hot, and, and it's dry, and there is nothing. And this imagery is used throughout Scripture of the wilderness. When you see wilderness in the Bible, don't think, oh, yeah, pine trees, East Texas, right? Going out away from the town. No, that's wilderness. That's what it looks like. It's a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. You are desperate just to make it through another day. It's really tough. And then one of the images that's used, the idea of what's it like to find an oasis in this place. And so we go to a place when we're there called Angedi, which is a which is throw this up. This is this is the well, this is the spring at Angeti, where you have this, this in the middle of the it is in the middle of this, is this, this river that runs straight out of the rock and it runs this stream down here. This is what the love of one another is supposed to be like. This is what it's like to be loved by other Christians, that we love one another because the rest of the world has nothing for us. And that that's, the, that's the, what we learn to, to engage with. We love one another because the world is sure as heck not going to love you. It's going to hate you because it hates the Father and it hates the Son and it's going to hate you. And it's going to think it's doing it in his name, by the way. That just that boggles my mind when you read that, that there's going to be a time that the world is going to persecute us. And by the way, we, we are there philosophically now in America. It's not being acted out very much, but philosophically, we're going to hear more and more from people who are going to tell us what it's like to really be a Christian, and it's going to involve denying the Word of God. And as a real Christian, these aren't real Christians. You follow the Word of God, then you're not a real Christian. We're going to be persecuted from the moral high ground that people are going to stand on what they consider moral high ground and say, those are bigots and evil people and they hate people and, they, and they're going to think they're doing it in the name of morality and in the name of God. And they're going to be people doing it in the name of this new Jesus Christ that they have invented so that they can do that. We're going to see that. That's exactly what Jesus said. They're going to persecute you thinking they're serving him because they don't know the Father and they don't know the Son They think they do. They've invented one they like so they can persecute like that. That's going to happen. We need one another. But there is a more powerful enemy, not just the world, a more powerful who is behind the order of the world, the invisible who is our real enemy, the invisible creation for those who are still stuck in the world, still believing they're going to find value there, still wandering around in the desert thinking, my bank account will finally fill me up. That, that, that popularity or whatever is going to finally fill me up. That's what it's going to be. That I'm finally going to be liked enough. That if I do these things, that I'll finally be liked enough. God may love the world, but the world hates him and therefore us. And with all of this hatred, how do you make it? Their own families would have denied them. They would have been a disgrace to their own culture they need an ally, and one even more powerful than the love of each other. They need an ally. They need a helper. They need someone who will not let them forget the truth and not let them forget Jesus, someone who would equip them and arm them and armor them, and we need that too. Otherwise, we forget. Let's throw up that last Ein Gedi picture. So I want you to think about this provision, the, old, the, the fully, fully in completely inundated and saturated with this provision. So the first provision for surviving in the world is the love of one another. And here's the second one in verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So we're due to take a little time to talk about the Holy Spirit. He has been referenced over and over again in the book of John, this helper, the Spirit of God. He's been there all the way through. If, you've stood, if, if you want to, you go back, back, I think in John 1, we talked about the Trinity and had a couple of sermons about the Trinity. I'm not going to go through the whole Trinity concept today. Um, if you want to study the book of Ephesians, we've got that from a couple of years ago, a sermon series in the book of Ephesians, because Ephesians is kind of Christianity 2.0. They were kind of the first ones who were getting it so well that the apostle Paul says, oh my gosh. You guys are ready for the next level to really begin to understand what it's like to live this stuff out all the time and in all of your relationships. Not surprisingly, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit constantly through the book of Ephesians. It's all there because he's saying it. I believe that it turns out that the mature Christian life is largely about being saturated with the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That in the end, as important as the love of one another is... The presence of the helper is even more significant in our lives. Now, I'm not very good at that. I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at connecting to that Holy Spirit. I've I've gotten okay at learning to love one another, but this next level of going, how then do I learn to live this out? What does it mean to have this helper with us? We know this is the Holy Spirit, John referenced, it, uh, Jesus referenced it back in John 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Intriguing language that Jesus used here. You know him, you know of him, even if you don't realize it, because he's like all around you, he dwells around you and someday will dwell in you. Powerful language here. Remember, this is the Almighty God. This, as Jesus is escalating, he's creating a crescendo of the intimate relationship between himself and us. As Jesus is, is bringing this to this, this climactic concept of going, this is what it means to live here in the abiding of Almighty God. When he starts by saying he loves you like he loves me, he loves you. That's how he loves you. And by the way, not just loves you, wants to be your friend, wants to be right here with you, to know you, to not just love you but like you, to enjoy you, to be enjoyed by you, to develop a fondness for, a friendship with That's huge. And by the way, his spirit is with you, but not just with you. In the end, his spirit will indwell you. You can't get more intimate than that. You take up, if you're a Christian, you and I, we take up the same spiritual space as the Holy Spirit. Literally dwelling in us, we are his temple where man and God touch is us. Dang. Dang. That's us. The image being created here, the temple's gone. I've been there. There's a mosque. There's a golden dome. Without much of history, there was nothing there, nothing. Or doesn't need to be a temple there. There's a temple. It's me and it's you. It's where his glory dwells in the power of his spirit. This is, this is mind-boggling stuff. How do we miss this? How do I miss this? Jews and Christians kept an amazingly powerful, beautiful picture of the spiritual God in a crazy, pagan, physical world all around them. And yes, Christians and Jews failed at this for many times. But generally speaking, no one did that this way. Christians were often executed by the Romans for being atheists because the Romans considered having one God who wasn't visible, not good enough. That's essentially atheism in their mind. That's, that's nuts. They would go visit the temple in Jerusalem. They'd go visit Israel because they, were, they wanted to see the wonder of a sea with no fish, the dead sea, and the wonder of a day without work, and the wonder of a temple without a god. They considered there to be no god in the temple in Jerusalem because there was no idol. They couldn't get that. You go up to the Parthenon... This is, this is one of those weird things. You talk about a heartbreaker. So I, I, getting to go up there and being stunned and going like, it's one of those like you know Mount, Mount Rushmore or something. You're like, it's really here. Like I mean, I knew there were pictures, but there's actually a thing. Anyway, so you go, and, and I was so heartbroken because it's so beautiful, this beautiful white marble, and there's just a few statues here and there. It's very tastefully done, and it's so nice. Well, they start describing it, and they're like, you see all these little divots in the ground? Like, yeah, like every two feet. Over the entire hilltop, every two feet is a divot. Well, there was a statue there. Like that sounds horrible. That sounds like a, a, a flea market going out of business or something. Like I mean, there were every two feet there was these these statues, and then and then to really break your heart, you find out they painted them. They weren't white marble when they worshipped them. They liked they liked oranges and and green, bright green like this. They liked greens and golds and blues, and it turns out the Parthenon was probably—they've now discovered—they've paint flecks on it. It probably was kind of a weird baby blue and gold and, and orange, just a big, like, ugh. in that world. As everyone around them is worshiping apparently these flea market gods, they would say the the Jews and the Christians said God is spirit. And they stuck by it and they held to it as everything in us is tempted to want a physical representation of God. Everything in us wants that, right? We throw our earrings into the fire and poof, out pops a calf, right? Like, hey, how did that happen, right? We have a golden calf to worship. That's so much easier. So this, this idea, we're always looking for something to worship even that represents God versus going God is spirit. And his Holy Spirit, is, is, this, is the, this is the spirit who we've been able to understand and worship he is a spiritual being the the presence the worship of understanding of Yahweh in this we have a spirit there's more to us than just the physical person there's the immaterial the spiritual part of our creation the the invisible part of our creation if you will we are we are body and we are spirit we have a material we have an immaterial that's true about us this is our life force our zoe our the the indwelling life it is the breath It is the blood. The life is in this. God has that too. His is a person, the Holy Spirit of God. Our spirit is just just part of us. His spirit is a personality in and of itself. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. The strength, the energy of life. The life-giving energy of God is the divine person, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God and is God, just like the Son of God is God. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. You may have never noticed how clear this is. The Lord is the Spirit. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, notice it right there together. The Lord is Spirit, and He is the Spirit of the Lord. These concepts are interchangeable when you're dealing with three and one. There is freedom. We all With unveiled face, behold, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. I also want to take a second. There's an important passage I want to reference here about what it means, what our life is supposed to look like in relationship to this indwelling spirit, how much that should actually affect us, and it's in Luke chapter 12, but I want to give a little Background in this, because a lot of times, especially Christians, sometimes we have a weird view of this. Luke chapter 12 is uh, is where we get this concept of the unforgivable sin, and way too many people in the Baptist and evangelical world still think that's suicide, um, which is ridiculous. That has no connection whatsoever. That is a that is a medieval teaching that divides out sins. Um, it's a kind of a medieval Roman Catholic teaching that divided out sins into the sins that you could die with and still maybe go to heaven. And the sins that if you died with them, you couldn't go to heaven. And killing was one of the ones that if you died with killing on your record, you didn't go to heaven. And so, of course, if you killed yourself, then you died with that on your record. Kind of unavoidable at that point. So then you obviously went straight to hell. This is not biblical. That's traditional. That is tradition, not not biblical. The unforgivable sin is this fascinating little story that we have where Jesus has just performed a mighty miracle... Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was experiencing life as a man, therefore, the power of the Spirit was working through him to perform miracles. Because just like you don't have the power to perform miracles, Jesus Christ was not expressing his own power in the miracles, he was expressing the power of the Spirit in miracles because he was experiencing life as a human being. Now, his intimate, perfect connection with the Spirit must have been something amazing to see. I mean, this is a This this intimate relationship that he wants us to have with the Spirit, he was living it perfectly, sinlessly. How fantastic that must have been. How significant to him this must have been. Every single word that came out of his mouth was inspired by the Spirit from the Father. Every word, everything he did. That's intimate. That is right there together. In a minute, I I had never considered, literally hadn't considered this until preaching this the first service. We're going to get to that passage in a few minutes that talks about not being drunk with wine but being filled with the Spirit. And it never crossed my mind that maybe, the, maybe Paul was intentionally playing those against each other. I mean, I, I knew he kind of was, but I never thought of it in these terms. Like, when you're drunk, and I'm sure none of you know anything about this, so I'll just, what I've been told is that when you're drunk, that it begins to affect everything you do and you don't even always know it. Right? What, what, who and what you find attractive begins to change, I've heard. Okay, <laughs> how, you, how you drive or fail to drive. How you walk or fail to walk. Well, how your speech is, everything you do is now suddenly affected by this alcohol coursing through your system. Maybe the Apostle Paul is saying, that's what it should be like to be filled with the Spirit. Is that what you find attractive and who you look to and and who you speak to and what you talk about and how you talk. And all, all of that should be influenced by the Spirit as if he were filling you up just like the alcohol would. It just changes you in that. Interesting thought. That's what he's looking, and that's how Jesus is living. So he's living like this. He performs a mighty miracle. The Pharisees and the spiritual leaders come, and they say, oh, you're doing that through Satan, through the power of Satan. And, and here's what's fascinating. Jesus then, I, I don't think Jesus is so much angry here. I think Jesus is afraid for their souls. I mean, Jesus knows these men. He's been debating them for years. So Jesus, I see Jesus going, guys, mm mm don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to insult me. Say what you will against me. But Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Don't do it. Because if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that is not forgiven in this day or, or in the era to come. It's unforgivable. Now, notice, by the way, they just did it. And whatever it is, he, they just did that. He doesn't say, Oh, well, you're toast. Bummer. Move along. Find somebody else because y'all are Done. They have just blasphemed the Holy Spirit by misattributing the work of the Spirit to Satan. Now, the only thing worse, I would think, than misattributing the work of the Spirit to Satan would be to misattribute the work of the Spirit to, say, us. Probably more insulting, almost, to misattribute the work of the Spirit to us. And we do that all the time, right? So Jesus is warning us off of this, warning them off of that. Kind of like when you read the Bible and an angel shows up and the people start worshiping the angel. I think those are funny, awesome moments in the Bible. What what always happens when that happens? The angel shows up and somebody starts worshiping the angel. What does the angel do? Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> right? They don't want to get caught. God looks down and is like, hey, I was happening. Like, what is going on? That? like <laughs> don't worship, don't worship me. Mm-mm, only him. I think it's got Jesus is going like, no, 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 don't, don't. listen. Don't do that. I get what you're trying to do because they think they're insulting him. And he's like, You think you're insulting me? And uh, listen, insult me, whatever. Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I was listening to a preacher who, who said about this he goes, This, he has just performed a miracle in their midst. They have seen a mighty miracle of God. He has exhibited who he is with as clear as he possibly can. He's proclaimed who he is as clearly as he possibly can. He has offered them the plan of salvation as clearly as it could be offered, and they think it's Satan? What else is he supposed to do for them? I mean, if they can't tell the difference between the Holy Spirit at work in the Messiah of Israel, they're religious leaders. If they can't spot the difference between the Messiah of Israel prophesied for millennia doing a mighty work to the power of God and the Holy Spirit in their presence, or Satanism, what else is he supposed to do to save these people? I mean, he's kind of used all, there's all the clubs in the bag. I think Jesus is saying, stop this. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So long as you're doing that, you can't be saved. You can't be forgiven. So stop so that you can be. God forbid. Okay, so that's what's going on in this passage. At the end of that confrontation, Jesus says to his disciples, listen to, listen to the intimacy of this. They have just watched this confrontation with Jesus. Verse 11, and when they bring you before, he's telling his disciples, telling them not to be afraid. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you will defend yourself or what you will say. What? Why shouldn't they be anxious about that? You ever face that moment? I ought to tell this person about Jesus, but I'm afraid. I don't know what to say. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? I want to talk to my kids about this, but what if they ask a hard question? I wanted to, hey, cool thing, there's a verse in the Bible about that. Listen the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, if you've ever done any evangelism, if you've ever gone on mission, if you've ever counseled people, if you've ever faced this and you're listening to the Spirit, you've experienced this. You've had moments when the Spirit spoke through you and you've walked away going, that was good. I don't know where that came from. I, would, I didn't. That's a, that was a great verse for that situation. I don't even remember memorizing that verse. I can't even remember it now, but I knew it by heart for 10, 15 seconds ago. Like, how did that? The Spirit, will think of how intimate that requires, how intimate a relationship that requires with us to be dependent on Him in those moments. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you belong to Jesus Christ, this Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit that can empower you, even when they drag you into court and, and demand answers of you, that's the spirit that dwells in us. Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons and daughters. God has spent the, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the spirit of his son, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. This is the Holy Spirit who proclaims, who testifies to us about Jesus and proclaims to our own heart who we are. Abba, Father, is our God. We are his sons and daughters. That's the Spirit who lives in us. Think of the significance as we face trials and temptations if we would be listening to the Spirit tell us, you are my child. Live like that. Who is the Spirit? What are his ministry and what are his roles? Now this is, this is I said in the first service like, Taking 35 or 40 minutes, looking more like 40, 45 minutes. So to say, to teach on the Holy Spirit is just dumb. Well, I'm doing it this morning, but it's just dumb. You need either 16 hours to teach or 20 hours to teach of the Holy Spirit, or you just barely reference the Holy Spirit. So I'm coming back to what I think is the emphasis here. But what is his ministry and his role? He's the witness of Christ and his works from creation to judgment. It was the Spirit that hovered over the waters at creation It is the spirit that hovers like a dove over Jesus at the baptism. Same spirit. Empowers and leads those who follow Christ. Christ and the Hebrew worshipers, uh, the prophets, the first apostles, the early Christians. He spoke to Peter and Philip and the apostles and Paul. He restored, listen to this, restoring the condemnation from Babel. Babel, when, when God essentially cursed mankind by giving us all types of different languages so we couldn't hear the same message. Instead, he empowers his first evangelist to all speak one language and that everyone listens, understands it in their own, reversing through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel, the curse of Babel. He is the comforter, the paraclete, someone who comes alongside, who walks through, who leads and guides like a shepherd, the stronger man who fills the soul to protect it from possession, the gift who is the giver of gifts, who turns believers into gifts to one another and to the church one who comforts us so that we can comfort each other. He recreates the garden for us. Consider the significance of this. As we were chased as a race from the garden, the garden of Eden, he now abides in us, turning us into little gardens of Eden everywhere we go. So the people experience God's good fruit through the Spirit in our lives, the love and the joy and the peace And the patience and the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the self-control. These are the fruit that the Spirit produces in us. Just like we're His temples, we're His little gardens. And we walk around through the Spirit producing fruit. And people get to experience the things that the world doesn't understand. And they get to experience it through us. And then they want to know where that comes from. My favorite's. illuminates, inspires, equips all scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. You see, breath of God, that's spirit. The ruach in Hebrew is the word. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training that that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Maybe my very favorite one that he is the one who seals us. This is powerful language. Those of you who who are canners, Doug, Doug Foreman afterwards is like, it's such a cool picture idea when that can pops. It is sealed. This idea of being sealed, Ephesians 1:13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Sealed. Like the king's signet ring, sealed into wax. No one breaks this but the power of the king. The Roman seal placed on the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb of Jesus. You better have more power and authority than the Roman government if you break this seal. And the Holy Spirit is the seal of who we are. We are sealed like blue barrel ice cream should be sealed, right? (laughs) Right? You cannot, it's un, unbreakable that you would say, this is, this is who we are, and that cannot be changed. No one has the power to break the seal of the Holy Spirit. No one. That's the seal placed on us, the promise that from now on, forever we are his, and he'll have words with anyone who says otherwise. You're, you're defying him to say otherwise. This is a, It's a powerful language, the statement of our identity I'm going to try to wrap up here. <laughs> of course, this is the mindset of John 14, 15, 16, the mindset of the abiding life. He dwells, he tabernacles, he abides in us. Romans eight, eleven. the spirit of him who raised us from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He is the confidence of an eternal life, a new life and a new body <clears throat> all goes back to that message. Jesus Christ wants to abide in love with each of his, and that's us. God the Father wants to live intimately with each of his, his children, that's us. This is accomplished by God dwelling with us in his spirit, abiding, walking, living, loving. I quickly reference Brother Lawrence, if you wanna do some research on this, the practice of the presence of God, a man who, whose journals follow him, his, his attempts to learn to live and walk in the Spirit moment by moment by moment by moment. It's a beautiful thing to read, um, that book, to see that this is, this is, he sets a new standard for us as Christians, that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 4.30, not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There we are, sealed. Well, then how do we grieve him? The whole rest of the book of Ephesians builds to that. If we don't love each other well, if we don't give grace, if we don't use only uplifting words, If we fail to let go of bitterness and wrath and shouting and hatefulness, when we don't get along with each other, it grieves the Holy Spirit. You can imagine because we're meant to be a gift to each other from the Spirit. We're not perfect. We're so flawed and we're so forgetful and we're so distractible and we we don't do so many things so well. But he loves us and with us and we can love each other because of who he is. Ephesians 5, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not be drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We live out this life submitted to Him and submitted to each other, loving Him and loving each other, dwelt in by Him, and therefore loving each other, which allows us to tolerate a fallen and broken and hateful world that we submit to the leadership of the Spirit and love each other. Love and obedience go hand in hand as we've seen all through these passages. We have two allies in this dark and broken world. Most importantly, we have the Almighty Spirit of God, God himself with us, indwelling us. And then we have each other. So let us learn to be still and to listen and to attune and to obey and love the best that we can. Stand with me, if you will, and let's pray together. Holy Spirit we ask that as you dwell in us, the followers of your Son, that you dwelling in us would be something that we can remember, that we can be still and listen, that we can relate to you. God, we are are your temple, your tabernacles walking around, trying to love each other, trying to love a world that hates us. And I pray we will hold fast to the truth of that role, that your spirit would empower our families, our marriages, our friendships, all of our relationships, Lord. Pray that your spirit would empower all the ministry that you've called us to. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us with the might of your almighty power. I pray that we would be filled with the miracles of who you are, that you would... Help us to listen and to learn and to love in extravagant ways the way the Father loves the Son. Lord, I pray we would point to you, Father, Spirit, and Son. I pray that you would teach us even as we worship you in fullness, in the truth, and in your Spirit. God, I pray that our lives would be defined by this. We ask this in the name of your Son, for obedience to him through the sprinkling of his blood. We ask this through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We ask this according to the perfect knowledge and will of the Father. Amen.